Hey, I am so thrilled to be with you tonight. This is great. I realize this is actually the very first time I've been at a Salt and Light event. And uh, I know there's people I know here and people that are new. And I always kind of wondered whether you folks were more salt than light. And then I, and then I heard the testimonies and I realized you truly are both. And I'm excited to be here. So I'm going to jump right into it. I got a little message for you tonight that I'm calling Lost and Found. And, uh, you know, the, the whole concept is this. You know, Jesus said his mission was this. He, he came to seek and save those that were lost. And that was his primary mission. And we sing about it in Amazing Grace, right? Because we were lost at one time. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. And, you know... It's sort of interesting that this was the mission and still is the mission to win the lost. And yet when we baptize people and people give testimonies, how many of you find it cute that people always talk about how they found Jesus? Like he was the one that was lost, right? And they'll say, yeah, and I lived like the devil and I did this and then I found Jesus. And I'm thinking, man, he found you, I think. There's a story about that. So this Baptist church was doing outdoor baptism on a Sunday morning. They're right down by the river. They're dunking people right into the river. And there's this young man who walks by and he's as drunk as a skunk. He's been up all night drinking. And he's staggering by like this. And the pastor's baptizing people, looks up and sees this young drunk man and says, Young man, would you like to come down here and find Jesus? He goes, all right. And so he wanders down and the pastor baptizes him into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he puts him down under the water and he lifts it up. And he said, son, did you find Jesus? He went, no. Nope. So he said, well, we'll do it again. And he baptizes him again. And he brings him up and he said, did you find Jesus? And he says, not yet. So he dunks him one more time and he holds him down to the bubble stop coming. And then he brings him up and he says to him a little sterner this time, have you found Jesus yet? To which the young drunk man says, are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> so not as funny as I thought it would be. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. <laughs> so here's, here's how the whole story begins. You'll remember uh, that uh, before Jesus had disciples, John the Baptist had disciples, and one of his disciples was a man named Andrew. And so there's John with his disciples, and Jesus walks by, and John points at his cousin, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then it says that Andrew immediately went and found his brother Peter and says, come and see, we have found the Messiah. So it actually kind of does work both ways. Then it says the very next day, Jesus went and found a man named Philip and said, come follow me. And it says, Philip ran and found his brother named Nathaniel and say, come and see, we have found the one in which Moses spoke. And so all the way through the early stages, you see this idea of lost and found. And that's how the gospel has grown, right? People are lost and somebody goes and finds them and shares them that they found Christ and they now find Christ. And the whole thing is just perpetuated like that. And so this evening, my message for you is, really going to be simple, lost and found. It's going to be so simple that you may be tempted to just dismiss it as unimportant. I'm telling you, it's not. And if we can really get a hold of what these concepts I'm talking about, and I know as soon as I get into them, you're going to go, I know all that. You do know all this. And it's profoundly simple. I'm promising you that. But I'm saying if we can really lay a hold of it, it can transform the work we do of the gospel. So here are the three keys, I believe, to, to uh, winning the lost. And they're this. Number one is, is a burden for the lost. Number two is a love for the lost. And the number three is a message for the lost. I know you would say, everybody say it with me. Say, I knew that. And you did know that. But we're going to go through it a moment at a time. And we're going to look at it. And I'm going to try to stretch it out and try to impact you with it. I hope so anyway. So the first one is this. It's a burden for the lost. The whole thing, the whole journey of winning people for Christ begins with a burden for Christ. And a burden for the lost. Now, when you, when you look at Paul the Apostle, my, like, what was his deal, right? I mean, he didn't care what people did to him. You can beat me, you can shipwreck me, you can arrest me, you can throw me in jail, you can do whatever you want, you can persecute me, and eventually they beheaded him. Why was he so motivated to carry on and do what he did 
and yet he didn't care what the consequences are. There must have been something deep within his soul that allowed him to press on that would not hold him back. Now, I I think I I see at least one place in the scripture where he tells us what it is. And I'm going to throw it up on your screen here. It's Romans chapter 9, verse 1. And he starts off by saying this, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. I'm thinking, why does he have to tell us he's not lying? I mean, my kids say that. I'm not going to lie. And then I say, why would you start with I'm not going to lie? Like, were you going to lie? You changed your mind and now you're not going to lie. You know, young people use that expression. It's stupid. But Paul was the guy. (laughs) Paul was the guy who started it. He says, I tell you the truth. I'm not going to lie. Why is he saying that? Because what he's about to tell you is so incredible that you're not going to believe it. And let's look at it. Let's, let's see. He says, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh who are the Israelites. Did you catch what he just said there? He says, this is the burden in my heart and I'm telling you the truth, I'm not dying. Line. I would be prepared to be accursed from Christ myself in order to ring, win Israel for Christ. He said he's willing. We know he was willing to be chained, imprisoned, beaten, you know, flogged, killed. But he says, I'm not just willing to do those things for the gospel. I'm willing to be accursed from Christ. I'm willing to go to hell so that they don't. I'm reading that verse. Is that what it says? I think that's what it says. That's why he says, I'm not lying, I'm telling you the truth. I'm reading that and I'm going, I'm not, don't put up your hand. I'm not willing to do that. Are you willing to do that? I, I, and here was the burden that he had that was the thing that motivated and drove him. And that's why he was able to do the things that he did because he had this burden and he was willing to pay any price to see it come to pass. How many of you have ever heard of this group? It's probably a century old and it was called the One-Way Wish Missionaries. How many of you know who the One-Way Missionaries were? Well, not very many, but I'll tell you the story of them. So this was their ethic. What they would do is they would pray and ask God, where do you want me to go? And I'll go anywhere in the world. God would give them a place, a country. They would book a, a ticket, passageway, on a ship. They would buy a coffin or build one, load all their worldly possessions in this coffin, load it as their luggage, and go to that place because their intent was never to return. They were taking a one-way trip onto the mission field, and they were going to be buried in that coffin. That's commitment. And it was a little bit hard for them to track the one-way missionaries because they never came back with the stories. They went, but there are a few of these stories from the one-way missionaries, and one of them was a man by the name of William Mel. And what he did was his father was a one-way missionary, and they ended up in New Zealand. And his father went and did mission work, and and then when he became old enough, William decided he was going to go. And he packed up his coffin, and he went to a place called the New Hebrides Islands. These people were barbaric. They were actually cannibals and headhunters. And he went there, and every missionary who had ever gone before him to that place had died. But somehow he won them over. Somehow he survived. And uh, he was there for about 27 years, uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century. He was there. And then 1937, a deranged man murdered him. And they did something they'd never done in that community before, was they buried a foreigner right in the middle of town. That was something they did not do with foreigners. And they buried him. They put up a sign. It wasn't a tombstone exactly. It was a sign. And it said, when he came, there was no light. And now that he is gone, there is no darkness. And see, he transformed that people because he had this burden. He was willing to pay any price to to see this happen. Now contrast that, and no offense, but contrast that with the people in our churches. Your church, my church. You know, I was talking to someone the other day. They were adding on to their church building. Like, we heard some stories here tonight. They're adding on to their church building. Don't go to our church. I said to him, hey, aren't you excited about the building project going on? He says, no, I'm not excited about it. He said, I said, why not? He says, I don't want our church to grow. I'm happy with the way it is now. And I thought, you're, you're kidding me. Is, is this the mentality that we have? And what they're missing, what we have lost is the burden for the loss. And so we have to kind of stir it up. And probably most of you in this room, in fact, I'm sure every one of you would know the name Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody. 
And again, it's a century-old uh, story. And uh, Dwight L. Moody was a, one of the most effective preachers of all time. And when he, when he preached the gospel, people got saved and they stayed saved. There was this great retention rate. rate. One day they were having this meeting. They were in a second-story room. He was with a bunch of pastors. This young pastor came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, I got a question for you. How, how is it? Tell me as a young man, how is it that you're so effective of winning the loss? So he said to this young man, he said, come look out this window. He said, what do you see? And the young man said, I see people. He says, no, no, no. Look harder. What do you see? He says, well, I see men and women and children. He says, no, no, no. Look harder. What do you see? He said, well, I see construction workers and business people, and I see mothers with babies in carriages and school children. He says, no. That's your problem. See, when you look out the window, you see people. When I look out the window, I see lost souls that are going to a godless eternity without Christ. That's what makes me so effective. I see people different than you do. And see, I'll tell you why it's an important story. Because we walk through the streets and we go through the malls and we go through the stores and we go through life every single day and we don't think like that. We don't have that same burden. Fun fact, you probably for sure don't know this story, that uh, my grandfather was named after Dwight L. Moody. My grandfather's name is Harley Moody Hughes. And what happened was my great-grandfather was the mayor of Brandon, and uh, they were Christian people. They brought in, in 1901, they brought Dwight L. Moody into Brandon. My grandmother, great-grandmother underwrote, it cost her $2,000, it was a princely sum, and they had full-blown revival in Brandon over 100 years ago. That my, was because of my grandmother and my grandfather. And then a few years later, when my grandfather was born, they named him after Dwight L. Moody. Fun fact, eh? And I always like to think I have a little Dwight in me. You know, that's what I was, I was sort of hope for. But here's my point about this, is that every time you look at someone who's really effective at sharing the gospel, I can promise you they all have this thing called the burden for the loss. They carry it with them in their heart. There's a story of, of Billy Graham. He's in this village, in this town, rather. It's a new town, and he's standing on the street. He's got a letter in his hand, and he looks this way, and he looks that way, and he's trying to look for the post office, and a little boy goes by, a 10-year-old on a bike. He says, excuse me, son, can you tell me how to get to the post office? And the little boy says, it's right down to the street, to the right. And so he says, thank you very much. And he says, son, uh, you know what? Tonight I'm going to be at the Baptist church in town, and I'm going to be telling people how to get to heaven. Would you like to come? Little boy says, I don't think so. You don't even know how to get to the post office. <laughs> so the first thing, and I, and I hope you caught it, the first thing was this, the, the burden for the lost. The second thing is the love for the lost. And you know, if I asked you what the Great Commission is, every single person in this room would quote it. And you'd say, well, I know what it is. The Great Commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. If I asked you what the Great commandment is, you'd also know that. You'd say it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all, my, all your soul, and, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But a lot of times we think the Great Commission and the Great Commandment are mutually exclusive, and I think they're inextricably connected, because I think that the Great Commission is the what, the Great Commandment is the how. And I think we could have all the burden for the loss in the world, but you know what? If you don't love them, you are not likely to do a very good job of reaching them. So I want to tell you a really story, super embarrassing. You'll love it. It's funny as anything. And uh, how many of you remember, and I'm probably going back 30 years on this one, there was a program called Evangelism Explosion. Anybody remember Evangelism Explosion? Only a few hands in the room. There's this little program they came up with. I've only done it once. It worked perfectly. worked like a charm. First time I did it, the guy literally exploded. So I, I, I know it works. And this is an honest to God true story. So there was this thing, evangelism exposure, and I was reading about it. There was no internet, whatever. Somehow I, I got a, a hold of the material. I'd never taken the course, but I thought, this is how pastors think. I thought, I've never taken the course, but I can certainly teach it. And so I had the material... And so I thought, I'm going to teach this course. So I, in, I invited everybody to, in the church to this evangelism explosion course. And exactly 12 people showed up. And I'm thinking, I am so much like Jesus, it's hard to believe, right? When you think about it. 
I got these 12 disciples and they want to learn how to evangelize. And I thought, this is just perfect. So I said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to spend five weeks. I'm going to go through the curriculum. I'm going to teach you how to evangelize. Something I had never actually done myself. And especially never done this particular program we were doing. So anyway, I spent five weeks. They came. The 12 showed up every week, every week. And then I said, on the sixth week, what we're going to do is we're going to go to a public place and we're going to demonstrate it. We're going to workshop it. So... After the fifth week, we met together in the sixth week, and we got in vehicles, and we went down to Fort Richmond Mall, which was on South Pembina Highway. How many of you remember Fort Richmond Mall? Those of you who are from Winnipeg. It's no longer there, and I believe I have something to do with that. <laughs> so, so anyway, we, all, we drive down our cars, the, the 13 of us, me and my 12 disciples, and we walk into the mall, and the mall is like dead. It was always dead. That's why it's closed. And there was one East Indian man sitting alone on that middle bench waiting for his wife. She was in one of the stores. So I, I turned to my disciples and I said, I'll do the first one. I said, you guys just hover back here and watch the master at work. And so I mean, imagine how stupid this looks. There's one person in the whole mall. I come in with 12 people that are all following behind me like this and watching me. And they're all standing there watching me like this. So then this poor guy, he's sitting on the bench. I go and I sit down right beside him, like right beside him like this. Flop my Bible open to Romans because that's where all the good stuff is. And, and I flop my Bible. I never said hello. I never introduced myself. I just merely launched right into it. I was a little nervous. I just launched right into it. And I said, I'd like to share a verse with you from the Bible. <laughs> and he looks at me. He, remember I told you about the explosion part? He jumped to his feet and he said, get away, get away from me, you silly man. Get away, I have my own religion. I don't need your religion. Get away, get away from me, you see. You are a very bad man, Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> and so I, it's honest to good, goodness truth, except for that Seinfeld part. And uh, that was Babu. You remember the episode? Some of you do. So anyway, so he's yelling his head off at me. And I'm thinking, it works. Evangelism. Explosion. As he's yelling his head off me. Well, remember the 12 disciples? They were standing right off to the side like this. Their mouths were on the floor. Their eyes were as wide as saucers. And I'm thinking, I am in so much trouble here. And I thought, I'm going to have to make some lemonade out of this lemon. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to downplay my, you know, slight failure there. And so I walked over and I said, well, that didn't work quite as well as I had hoped. Who's next? <laughs> you know what these people did? They literally turned around, walked out those doors, got in their cars and drove away. <laughs> it was such a colossal failure. I remember going home and telling my wife about that. I can't figure out what went wrong. Well, you've already figured out what went wrong. I had no relationship with this guy. I didn't know what I was doing. It was a complete, utter, unmitigated disaster. But here's the fundamental problem. See, I had no equity with this individual. There is no reason why he should listen to me. Jesus said, they will know you by your love. And I had no way of expressing that or showing that. I had done nothing to earn his respect. I had done nothing to earn an audience with him. You're following this, right? And so that's why this whole concept about learning how to love our, the lost is so vital here. And I wonder if you can remember, I know you all can, there was, in Luke 15, there was three parables that Jesus told. And one was the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coins, and the parable of the lost son, which we know is the par parable of the prodigal son. But I'm wondering if you remember the context. And the context was that the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him this question. And they said, why are you a friend of sinners, basically? And so Jesus is, needs to answer that for the Pharisees because they don't know why he's a friend of sinners. So he starts off and he tells the story of the parable of the lost sheep. And he says, you know, which of you has, you know, 100, 100 sheep and, and one goes missing and it's lost? Will you not leave the 99 and go find the lost sheep and come back rejoicing that you found the one? So he starts there. He's just talking about someone's possessions. And I think the Pharisees would have understood that. And then he kicks it up a notch and he starts talking about the lost coin. The woman has 10 coins and she's lost one. 
and she's panicking, and she sweeps her whole house. Finally, she finds it. She calls all her neighbors, and they come rejoice together. And I know you're reading that story, and you're going, really? She's that excited over a dime or a penny? And see, here's what most commentators say about that. It wasn't just a coin. See, in Jesus' day, they didn't have wedding rings, and they had what they called wedding necklaces, And most commentators believe that that this wedding necklace was probably, what they did was they put coins around this necklace and she probably lost a coin from her wedding necklace and she was freaking out about it. And uh, how many of you ladies here uh, have ever misplaced your wedding ring? How many of you have ever misplaced your wedding ring? And how how many of you found it again? And did you rejoice when you found it? You were freaking out when you lost it. Why? Because it was important. And so when you found it, you wanted to tell everybody about it, right? So don't miss what he's doing here. He's going from a possession. Now he's going to something really important, like an heirloom, like a wedding necklace, like a wedding ring. And then he kicks it up yet another notch, and he tells what's considered the prince of all parables, the prodigal son. And you, again, know the story. You've all preached it out many times. And the father has two sons, and one takes his inheritance and goes off and blows it on wine, women, and song. And, and the father, here's what you don't want to miss about this story. He doesn't know where his son is. He doesn't know if his son is dead or alive. And in, for all intents and purposes, he's lost his son. And when his son finally did come to his senses, this is what it, the wording of that parable, and it's amazing, It says, and while he was still afar off, his father saw him. What does that tell you? He was watching. He was waiting. He was watching. And then one day, every morning, he got up and looked down that road. And then one day, one day, his son comes walking down that road. And he ran down that road. And he threw himself on him. And he hugged him. And he, his stinking pig slop all over him. He didn't care. He said, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals, kill the fatted calf. My son was dead, but now he lives again. So this is the story he's telling them. He's ramped it up from possession to heirloom. Now he's talking about a lost son. See, there's nothing more painful in this world than losing a child. Some of you know that. What he was trying to do was he was trying to get these Pharisees emotionally invested in this issue. Why are you hanging out with, with sinners? Because they're lost. And they're created in the image of God. They're children of God, every last one of them. And they've gone their way. And nothing burdens the heart of God more. And so he tells them this so that they'll understand the importance of loving the lost. So I want to tell you a fascinating story about this. So a few years back, I met a man by the name of Craig Gross. Some of you are going to know this, this guy. He, they call him the porn pastor, Triple X Church. How many, do you have his picture there? How many of you know this dude? You've seen this dude. And so here, here's, what, here's what Craig Gross does. Craig Gross, this Triple X Church, he has a ministry to adult movie, movie stars, like porn stars. And he goes to adult movie festivals, porn festivals, and he set up, sets up a booth and he hands out Bibles called, here's the Bible, it's called the Jesus Loves Porn Stars New Testament. Do you have that one? I have a lot of versions, I don't have that one. And, uh, and he has this booth, he hands out, look at the dude on that thing. And so he's handing out this New Testament with a pimp on the front of it. And he's handing them out to porn stars and, and, and all of these different people. And, these, and, he's, and he's connecting with us. And so anyway, here's where I met him. So I, I met him at uh, Promise Keepers in Edmonton a few years back. And he and I were speaking. We were sharing the stage. And the next morning, I asked him to meet me for breakfast. We both were flying out. I thought, I want to see what makes this guy tick. I mean, what makes this guy want to go and hang around with porn stars and porn producers? And I can't even, I don't even want to imagine it, do you? And I certainly don't want that. I mean, I wouldn't want that ministry. I don't want it. I mean, God, don't give me that. I don't want to do that. And yet God's called this guy. He's married. He has kids, by the way. And is, uh, he walks in accountability. But anyway, this is what he does. And his wife comes with him and they minister to porn stars and so there he is in the, in the midst of this thing, and he tells me this story while we're having breakfast. You're not going to believe it. So, so he, he ends up meeting the world's most famous porn star, 
male porn star whose name is Ron Jeremy. And uh, I hope you don't know that name. I've had people come up to me after I've told a story and go, Hi, I know that Ron Jeremy. I've seen some of his movies. I said, you shouldn't be telling me that. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to tell you why he's the world's most famous male porn star. We're not going to get into it. But I will tell you this. He's been in 2,000 adult movies, and he has slept with 5,000 different women. And Craig uh, Gross starts ministering to this guy, and he builds a friendship with this guy, and they start having this friendly debate about, uh, you know, porn, the vice and the virtue of it, and of course, Ron Jeremy is all for it, and he thinks it's a wonderful thing for society, and so then the two of them end up coming to this idea that why don't they take their little argument, their debate on the road, and they start doing something on university campuses called the Great Porn Debate, and the two of them, you got the point, there, there he is, Ron Jeremy. He's one good-looking dude. You can see why, what I'm talking about. Uh, I mean, the porn pastor, let's face it, is way better looking than the porn king, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But, but so anyway, these two guys go on the road. I want you to think about this story. They're going around to university campuses debating pornography, the vice and the virtue of it. Do you know what ends up happening? These two become best friends and they hang out together and they horse around together and uh they, they what happened was and i don't want you to miss this craig gross started loving ron jeremy and became his friend and he wasn't going to let the fact that this was this guy was a horrible sinner stand in the way of his relationship with him and so then what happened was cnn invited them to come on Nightline, and they were being interviewed on Nightline. There they were sitting in this chair, and, and the, the, they were loving it. The media was eating this thing up. And they turned to Ron Jeremy, and they said to him, what do you like best about the porn pastor? What do you like best about Craig Gross that you guys are friends? He says, you know what I like about him? He's not a hypocrite. He says, I don't agree with almost anything he believes, but I'll tell you this, he's sincere in what he believes. He's genuine in it, and I respect him for that. So Craig Gross is expecting a similar softball question to come his way. And instead, the interviewer says, so tell me, Craig, is Ron Jeremy going straight to hell or not? <laughs> and he said he was so shocked by the question. He was not expecting that particular question. And then he said, you know what? Ron Jeremy is my friend. And he is not going to hell because he's a porn star. But he might be going to hell because he's rejected Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, like every last one of us. And he preached the gospel on CNN, that we are all sinners lost without Christ. And so then, so then Craig started making deals with Ron Jeremy. And he said, you know, Ron, I've come into your world. It's time for you to come into my world. And on several occasions, Ron Jeremy has come to church and heard the gospel. And he hadn't come. When I, last time I talked to Craig, he had not yet come to Christ, but he was really working on him. And let me tell you something. That would be absolutely impossible if he hadn't first been willing to love this man. Would you agree with that? So the, yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is the, the, the burden for the loss. The second thing is the love for the loss. And the last and final thing is this, and it is a message for the loss. Now, I don't want you to miss out on this because, you know, you can have all the burden and all the love in the world, but if we never get around to sharing the gospel with somebody, then we've kind of missed the boat, haven't we? And we have to have a, a message for the loss and a message that works for the loss. And... I'm just going to be blunt about this. I think sometimes we've missed out on that. And we're so busy ministering to the church and ministering different things, and we haven't taken the time to say, what's a message that the lost are going to understand that's going to compel them to want to invite Christ into their life? And we have to figure out what that message was. And I'll be the first to admit that, that I struggled with this. And I, I think I have time to tell you this story. So in 1995, uh, some of us in this room traveled to Pensacola, Florida in 1995. There was something going on called the Brownsville Revival. How many of you remember the term, the Brownsville Revival? It was a church there. It was called the Brownsville Assembly. It was Pentecostal Church. Revival had broken up out there. We had heard about this. And uh, so myself and Ron and Randy Wengel. Al, you were with us? 
You were with us. There was free, I think there were seven or eight of us that went from Winnipeg. We got on a plane. We flew down. We thought, let's go see what this revival business is. We get there. It's Monday night. We go to this church, huge, huge building. We get to this church. There's people lined up outside to get into the stupid church service on a Monday night. They're rushing to the front. We're a bunch of suckers too. So we rushed to the front and we got some really good seats first night, didn't we? So we're there and this, this, this guy by the name of Steve Hill comes out. He starts preaching. And I mean, he is a tough Southern Pentecostal preacher. And if you got sin in your life, you're going straight to hell. That was the message he was kind of taught every night. And so anyway, at the end of his message, he says, he's taking his the altar call. He's doing the invitation. I misunderstood that that's what it was. Because he was saying, if you have something that's not right in your life, you need to come forward. And I'm sitting there thinking, I got stuff that's not right in my life. I'm going forward. So I get up out of my chair. These guys are all watching me. Huh. Mark's going up to get saved. <laughs> I, I, I misunderstood the altar call. So, so I went up there. I'm standing there. Within about two minutes, I got two counselors. They pounced on me. And they're trying to lead me to Christ. And I said, no, no you, you don't understand. I'm a pastor. They went, praise God, you're not the first pastor that's got saved here. I thought, all right, I'll roll with it. This is, you know, important. I, I can get saved like the next guy. And so, so I, you know, I went through the whole thing. I thought, you might as well experience it, right? Went in Rome. And so, so I went with it. And, uh, and they gave me a little booklet to take home. And, and of course, these guys were all chuckling at me. Oh, you got saved. So anyway... <laughs> Actually, it was, you got saved, it's about time, is, is, what they were, is what they were saying to me. So the next day, we had made an appointment to go out for lunch with the senior pastor. His name was John Kilpatrick. And so we went out for lunch, and he sat at the head of the table, and we all sat around there. He, for the life of him, could not figure out why eight pastors were there together. He said, what church are you guys from? And we'd say, well, we're from eight different churches. Yeah, but which church are you from? Eight different churches. And you're all friends? He couldn't figure this out. He was so, so, so out of it. So anyway, we said, well, tell us what's going on. Tell us what's going on. So he says it's been going on for X number of months. <laughs> this is what he says. He says, we've had 20,000 people come to Christ in the last four and a half months and 26 pastors. I put up my hand. I jokingly said, make that 27. I, I got saved last night. He went, praise God. <laughs> praise God. He just rolled with, praise God, <laughs> you know. And I thought, notwithstanding this bizarre experience of having to get saved again, uh, we went night after night, and we listened to Steve Hill preach, and night after night, we saw people standing, non-Christians, standing in line to get in that building, to hear hear the gospel, to hear they're going to go to hell, and night after night, people flocked to the front and coming to Christ, and we're watching this, I'm thinking, why is this happening? And we realized it was the simple thing was this, that there was a message for the lost, that in, at least in that southern culture, they, they understood and they were responding to it. And so by about the last night we were there, I don't know what it was, a Thursday or Friday night, where I'm sitting there and I'm watching this happen yet another night in a row where hundreds of people are coming to Christ. And I feel like the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, Mark, you can do this. Now, I knew what he was saying. I, I, not do it like this. I don't want to do it like that. You know, that whole hellfire and brimstone thing they had going on every night was not my cup of tea, and I don't think it'll work in Canada. That's not what he meant. He meant, you can do this. You can lead people to Christ. You need a message for the lost, and if you have a message for the lost, people respond. So I went back to my church that next Sunday, and I thought, I, I thought about it. I thought, you know, in all the years I've pastored, I've probably taken three altar calls, three invitations I've given. That's probably it. I thought, I'm going to start giving invitations for people to accept Christ. So the first Sunday back, I gave an invitation for people to accept Christ. And guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. Well, you expect something to happen? Nothing happened. So I did it again the next week. Guess what happened? Nothing. Next week, guess what happened? Nothing. Next week, guess what happened? Nothing. This went on week after week to the point where people came and said, Pastor, why are you doing this? Why are you giving these invitations? There's nobody here that's not a Christian. I said, I am going to continue to give invitations until one of you gets saved. <laughs> no, <I'm just> 
I got saved, they can get saved. I said, no, I'm going to continue to do this until, until something happens. And I feel like if we don't do it, I, I said, I'm not apologizing for this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so week after week, week after week, week after week, I did it. After probably two and a half, three months, a woman put her hand up, a young woman who gave her heart to Christ that day. And what had happened is a terrible story in her life. She was married and her husband started to have his eyes wander and he wanted to bring a third party into their sexual relationship and she agreed to it. And she was in this messed up uh, relationship and messed up sexual mess. And she, some, a friend of hers brought her to church and she was hearing something that, that she finally realized for the first time in her, in her life. This is all wrong what I'm doing and that is what I need. I need this guy named Jesus. And that was our first person that ever came to Christ. And then the next person was a few weeks later and then a few weeks earlier. But this is what happened. I continued to do that and that window just got smaller and smaller and smaller. Probably within a year's time, we started seeing people come to Christ every single Sunday. That was 24 years ago. And we have not had a single Sunday, not a single Sunday in 24 years where someone has not come to Christ. We have seen hundreds and hundreds of people. And it's not because I'm so brilliant or great or talented or anointed. I just got saved, remember? It was just a matter of the fact that I was willing to present a message to the lost that they can understand. And that's why I'm trying to stir you here today. So I'm just going to leave you three really quick things. This is what we tell our our people in our church. And I want to just leave this with you in case you didn't get anything out of it so far. Uh, Here's what I tell our people. Because I think every Christian needs to have a message for the lost, don't you? I mean, it's not good enough for, for me to have one. People need to understand this. So I tell them three things, and they're really simple. The first one is this. I say, look, you don't have to have elaborate answers to every objection people have about the faith. You don't have to know everything about creation and everything about the six days and whether it was six days or not six days. Don't try to answer those questions. What you need to know is you need to have a simple and clear knowledge of the problem that happened in the garden with the fall of Adam and Eve and the fact that Jesus came to remedy that. It's not very complicated. You need to be able to explain that in a hundred words or less. And so, you know, we, we really challenge people. You don't need to know everybody's objections. You know, they can go look those up on the internet. You don't have to answer everything. And then the second thing we tell them is this. You need to tell your own story. You know why telling your own story is so important about how you came to Christ? I just told you mine. Uh, you know why it's so important? There is no objection to it. You don't tell somebody what Christ did in your life. They don't go, that didn't happen. Yes, it did. It's your story. It happened to you. You know what happened. There's no objection to that. They might not like it. They might think it's stupid. They might think you're stupid. It doesn't matter. And then the third thing is I tell them, because here's what I found. It's probably true in your churches. Our people have a hard time closing the deal. Right? They, they, they're not bad at at loving the lost. They're not bad at, you know, sharing a few things with the lost. They're not bad at telling their story. They have a terrible time closing the deal. So this is what I tell them to do. I say, bring them to church. I'll close the deal. Because remember what I do? I take an Im- give an invitation every single Sunday. And so we need to be encouraging people. Look, do your part. Lay the groundwork. Get them. Bring them to church. Your church services better not suck, by the way, or they won't stay for the invitation. And, I, and you get them there, and then you need to close the deal for them. So I'm going to close with one final story, absolutely true story. So one day, we, this, this young man in our church, he told us, he says, I've been inviting my brother to church for years. He won't come to church. I don't know what to do. I said, well, you know, if you've done that, if you've done everything you can do, all you can do at this point is pray for him. And just pray that God some way, somehow will get a hold of him. So he just started praying for his brother. And so then one Sunday, his brother was out jogging, because that's what he did on Sunday morning. And he was jogging down McGilvery Boulevard, which is where our church building is. And he was jogging down McGilvery Boulevard. There he was. He was in his tracksuit. He was out for his Sunday morning run, which he did religiously. He's running down the street. And he's actually kind of out of steam, and he's kind of fading for whatever reason. He's having a hard time. 
And this woman sees him and pulls over onto the side of the road, throws the door open and says, hop in, I'll give you a ride the rest of the way. And he went, what? He, said, he says, you look like you're really worn out. Hop in, I'll give you the ride the rest of the way. He, he says, where are you going? He says, I'm going. She says, I'm going to Church of the Rock. She said, he said, okay. So he jumps into the car because he was flagging out there. He jumps into the car she, and closes the door. She drives him to church. So, they, so he doesn't know what's going on. He says, you go to church here? She says, yeah, I go to church here. Come on in. The services are great. You should hear that pastor. He's amazing. The music's fantastic. So anyway, she invites this dude who was out running, who's the brother of a guy in our church who's been praying for him, comes in, he sits down at the back, he listens to the whole message, and at the end of the message, this guy in a tracksuit puts up his hand and invites Jesus into his life. And then his brother sees him, and his brother runs over there and says, bro, what are you doing here? He says, well, the weirdest thing happened. I was out for this ride, and this woman stopped and made me get in her car and drove me here. And so, I, and so this guy says, I gotta, I gotta go tell Pastor Mark this story. So, so he brings his brother over and they're standing there and there's this guy I've known for quite a few years and his brother in this sweatsuit and he's telling the story about his brother. I said, a woman stopped you while you were jogging and compelled you to come to church? He said, yeah. And I said, who is she? Who is she? Point her out, I wanna know who's doing this. Are you ready for this? He points at my 85-year-old mother. Chicky. Points at my mother. And says, that woman right over there, she made me come to church. I said, that's my mother. So they said, we gotta go talk to my mother. So then I took them over to my mother. I can't believe this whole thing's happening. So I, took them, I take them over to my mother. And I said, mom, so here's the guy you brought to church. He says, yeah, he was running. He was going to be late. I had to drive him. I said, (laughs) and uh, I said, mom, he wasn't running to church. He was out running and you picked him up. She says, well, that explains why he was so sweaty. (laughs) So anyway, a preacher loves a good story, right? So then I can't wait. The next Sunday... I'm telling the story to the congregation, and everybody's hearing this story. The next week, people are going down McGilvery Boulevard, <laughs> picking up joggers, or at least trying to, everybody trying to get in on the act. I thought, whatever was going on here, it's working, and we need to keep on doing it. You know what, folks? We have a chance to see revival in our cities, our towns, our villages, wherever you are. God's on the move. You need three things, and I know they're simple, but I hope I got you there. The burden for the lost, the love for the lost, the message for the lost. If we can get those things deep in our heart, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you that this is God's heart more than your heart, and we're going to see our churches grow and explode as God moves mightily in your very midst. Amen. That was, that was great, Mark. Just leave your microphone on for a second. I, I feel like we need to ask you to pray for us in a few ways. So, um, you know, Mark talked about a, a burden, that we need a burden for the lost, and, and we need love for the lost, and, and we need a message for the lost. And, uh, I mean, who do you call out to for that? I mean, you call out to the Lord right. for that, because we know that if he gives us these things, we've got them. And um, so actually, Mark, my feeling is if you could just come over here and, and I'm going to just ask people regarding these three things, because I know that you, you've been around the block on this stuff and, uh, you know, uh, that you would call out to the Lord on, on behalf of, for example, as Mark was talking and it came out, the, the idea of needing a burden for the lost and maybe your own heart said, I, I haven't got that in the way that I need that. If that's you, then stand up. About that, you're, you're, when you when you heard that, you thought, "I need that. I need that burden." Excellent. And I'm going to ask Mark to uh, to pray for us in that. Yeah, go for it, brother. Father, I want to thank you for these men and women that have just stood 
And they're crying out and they're saying, Lord, I need this thing, this burden, this burden that Paul had, this, this burden that the one-way missionaries had, the burden that the great evangelists of all times have had. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit that it wouldn't be something conjured up. It wouldn't be something contrived. It would be something that would stir up and flow out of their innermost being. That you would reach down from your throne in heaven and you would instill within us this kind of burden that Paul the Apostle had where nothing but nothing in this world would prevent him from taking the gospel to a world that is lost and dying without hope and without Christ in this world. And Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that it would be more than just words and more than just desire today, but that it would be truly an act of the Holy Spirit that you would give this group of men and women from salt and light North America, that you would give them a new sense of destiny, purpose, and burden for the lost like they have never had before. Let it be something that that percolates, something that marinates, and something that bubbles over even this weekend as they as they meet and pray and talk together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can be seated for that one. And uh, it does, you can stand up more than once if it come if you need all of these things. Um, Ron's where he he knows yeah. where the next one's going. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is where Mark was talking about that we need a love for the lost, and we know that that's critical. And if he was, you know, if this, if your heart kind of jumped or tugged at that, it's like, Lord, I, you know, maybe it didn't. I mean, and that's fine. It's, it's okay to sit down and to stay seated. If you've got a love for the lost, then you can, you can pray along with Mark as, uh, as he's praying for those of us who are calling out to the Lord for that. But if you felt like it's like, man, I need that and you want to call out to the Lord for that, just stand up. A greater love for the lost. I want to ask you to do something on this one. You know, I, I think we, I think actually of the three of them, I think we struggle hardest with this. And you know, we have this expression, and it's, 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 it's love the sinner, hate the sin. And it's super unhelpful, because we're actually better at hating sin than we are at loving the sinner, and we get caught up in that. And we get trapped in. In fact, the Bible doesn't even tell you to love the sinner and hate the sin. It tells you to love the sinner and hate your own sin, right? Remove the plank in your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother. And we got so caught up in that and we've become so negative and critical. And I want you to just place your hands over your heart like this. And because I really truly believe that what happens is that the Lord just all of a sudden tears away the judgment and he tears away the anxiety and anxiousness that we have for I mean I I understand it it's gross looking at the sinfulness of of this world it's hard to love some of the things that people do and some of the people who do those things but what God does is he tears those things away that that resistance to those people and we begin to look beyond the veil of their sin and we begin to see these people as broken hurting children of God, we begin to see them like the three parables from Luke 15. And Father, I just pray that, that right now as we put our hand over our heart, that you would enlarge our heart for the, for the loss, that you would put this love within us that really surpasses all understanding. We, we can't do this on our own, but Lord, you can. And Lord, uh, tear out some of these prejudices and some of this these uh, discriminations that we have and some of these even hatreds that we sometimes have towards certain people and certain types of people. And Father, give us that heart that Jesus had where he was so at ease with the sinner, so at ease and comfortable sitting in their midst while they were talking about what they talked about and doing what they did. And yet he was able to look past all of that and he was able to see their heart and he was able to see them as children of God, created in the image of God, but deceived and in blindness from the darkness. And I thank you for that love today. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Unless you know what's coming and uh, you want to stay standing. The third one is a message. Um, and, you know, maybe, you're, maybe you've been building relationship with friends or neighbors or, or family even. Um, and your, your heart's going out to them. And so, you know, you have a burden for them and you have a love for them, but you're finding that you're just short on a message. 
like that you need the Lord to, to give you something to say to them, uh, to, give, to give you a message for them. So um, if that's you, then uh, stand up if you're looking to the Lord. And I mean in a practical way, like in the foreseeable future, that the Lord will just put a message on your mouth and you will be able to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Mark said, in a way that whoever it is you've built this bit of a relational bridge with, who, that they would understand. So, uh, yeah, go for it, brother. I want to I pray two ways for this. The first one is this. How many of you standing, or sitting for that matter, uh, are responsible for preaching the word, the gospel in your setting? You're, you're the guy or, one, or gal. Hold, hold your hand up like this. Uh, I want to pray for you, first of all. Just hold your hand up like this, and I want to pray for the, this group of communicators here. And, Father, I want to ask that whatever their primary gifting is in teaching and preaching and communicating the gospel and unfolding and unpacking the Word of God, and they're probably very good at it. I want to pray, Father, that you would add one more piece to that, that there would be a clarity of, of proclaiming the gospel, that they would not be ashamed of it. Father, you said in your Word that you have chosen the foolishness of preaching to win the lost. It's the greatest gift we have to win the lost, and Yet sometimes we haven't recognized the power of it and we haven't utilized it. Father, every funeral that they stand up at, every gathering where they're asked to pray, every time they, they are speaking on marriage or family or money, let there be some small aspect of it that reaches out to send that message to the lost that Jesus loves them and that they are not forsaken and forsaken them and that they, he has died for their sin and Father, let us not neglect that. Let it be something that we carry. And Father, for the rest of us in this room, every one of us needs that message, that message for the lost, to be able to communicate in some simple way the truths of your gospel, that every one of us is lost and dying without you and without that work of the cross. None of us can get to heaven, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And without you, no one comes to heaven. So Father, I pray that you would do a work in us Give us all clarity, clarity in how we present the gospel in everyday situations to our family, in our preaching, and in every way. Holy Spirit, come and take us to the next level of communicating your word. In Jesus' name, amen.